to welcome you here to Morning Hour Chapel this morning. Uh, I want to give one more reminder that Exploring the Bible classes begin this week, Tuesday, uh, at 6.30. We're going to be up in the Fellowship Hall. Uh, if you haven't signed up yet, there's still time, but you need to let me know today so that we can get uh, materials uh, printed for you. So we're going to be spending a little bit of time in the coming weeks uh, talking about the Sermon on the Mount. And the Sermon on the Mount, um, as we have seen, is kind of like, um, well, it's kind of like the sound of music, where we start at the very beginning, a very good place to start. Uh, most of you remember that song from the sound of music. And the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount uh, is also basically the beginning of Jesus's formal ministry, the first time that we see him teach a large group of people. And of course, right at the beginning of that is the Beatitudes, or what we have called the blessings of Jesus. These are blessings that Jesus gives to basically explain how a disciple of Jesus Christ will live out their faith, and by living out their faith will be worthy of these blessings that Jesus gives. And we're going to do just like we did last week. We're going to read through these blessings of Jesus, starting in uh, Matthew chapter 5 and verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Last week we talked about how the kingdom of God is an upside-down kingdom. Uh, a kingdom where you turn right to go left, uh, as we talked about that Cars movie last week. Nothing that Jesus teaches in this Sermon on the Mount could be said to make any sense at all to our human reasoning. And we looked at this first blessing of Jesus last week. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. And we learned that worthiness of the kingdom starts with a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. It's a heart that understands that we are sinners who deserve death. We are sinners who have rebelled against God. And because we've rebelled against God, we don't deserve to be in his presence, to live in his presence. It's a heart that understands that the only way to become worthy of being in God's presence has nothing to do with anything that we can do. And it has everything to do with God's mercy. Only by God's mercy, only by God's grace can we even begin to be worthy of living in his presence and living in his kingdom. And this morning, we're going to look at the next blessing here, Matthew chapter 5, verse 4. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. 
Look at that again. Blessed are those who mourn. Talk about turning right to go left. What? How upside down is this thinking? You're blessed if you mourn. And now I don't know about you, but I have done my share of mourning. My share of grieving in the last 52 years of my life. Any of you done any grieving? Any of you done any mourning? I think I can safely say that most people here have mourned something or someone because the root cause of mourning or of grief is loss. It's loss of something or someone that is important to us. And when we lose that person or that thing, we mourn, we grieve, we're sad. And that's kind of what this word mourning means. It, it simply means being sad about something. And to an extent, just being sad, that's, it's true. We're sad because we don't lose something. We're sad because we don't get something that we want, right? We're sad because we don't get that promotion or we're sad because uh, we can't buy the house. Somebody outbid us. And I heard that like hundreds of times over the past year of people are just, you know, up, upbidding these houses. Anybody ha had a house upbid from them and they couldn't buy this house, this dream house? And they're sad about it. But true mourning is a little more complicated than just being sad. That is our state of being, our psychological, our mental state of being, where we feel this sadness, but that sadness is so intensified because of the person or the thing that we've lost that the process of going through the mourning process can take weeks or months or even years. And there are some people who have gone from this state of mourning for years to this state of despair where they don't feel any hope that they can even get through this loss that they've had. Now, when I think of true mourning for myself, I, I think of loss of a deep relationship. And most of us have had times when we have experienced the loss in a deep relationship. A, a parent has passed away. A child has passed away. A divorce has happened. When we were younger, young people, uh, you might be mourning when the boyfriend or the girlfriend breaks up with you and you thought they were the one. And it can take some time to get over those things. And most of the time we think of the death of a loved one as this time of mourning. And in the Bible, many, many times when, when someone has died, we read that there is a time of mourning, sometimes seven days, sometimes 30 days or 40 days, where people just mourn, where they take the time to remember the person, to mourn the person so that they can move on. And on December 17, 1999, uh, the day after her 65th birthday, my mother went into the hospital and she was supposed to have what the doctors would call a routine heart surgery. Now, it's open heart surgery. There's not anything ever routine about something like that. But the doctor was confident he could go in, fix what was going on. My mom would be in the hospital maybe for a week and then she'd come home and her life would be better. 
And the surgery went well. The doctor did exactly what he needed to do, fixed the issues with the heart, and my mom started recovery in the hospital. Her heart was better. We could read all of the different charts and everything, and her heart was beating uh, more regularly. There wasn't this arrhythmia going on. Uh, she was, uh, had lower blood pressure as a result of this operation. Everything worked. But what nobody foresaw, particularly the doctors, was that because of the stress on her body from the surgery, her lungs were experiencing some tremendous strain. Um, so much so, and she had been intubated during the surgery, but, but her lungs had, had undergone such a strain that when they tried to take the breathing tube out, she couldn't breathe. She had labored breathing, she was, her oxygen levels were dropping, they had to keep the, the tube in. So they had to reinsert this tube. I don't know if you've ever had a breathing tube before, I, I have not, but my understanding is it's not a pleasant experience to have a tube shoved all the way down your throat to help you to breathe. So they kept trying to get this tube out. They'd go every couple of days, they'd try to take it out. They wouldn't back it all the way out because they just wanted to make sure that, you know, things weren't going to be bad. And, and they kept trying, but nothing worked. They kept trying different uh, therapies. They kept trying different things, and nothing worked. They sent her to a rehab center to try some other things, and nothing worked. And on March 20th of 2000, um, I had taken a day off from work. Uh, going to take a personal day. Uh, I, was, I was directing a play at the time. Uh, Wendy and I were planning our wedding at the time, and I just I was going to take a personal day. I was going to go run a bunch of errands, go do a, a bunch of things, and of course, go and visit my mom uh, in the hospital, which I did almost every day while she was there. And I was exhausted. I was exhausted from everything that was happening. I was exhausted physically. I was exhausted emotionally, and uh, ended up sleeping in. I was going to get up early, get going, and I ended up sleeping in. I got woken up by my phone. And my sister was on the other end of the phone, and she said, you got to get to the hospital, like right now. So I got up, got dressed really quickly, drove to the hospital, about a 15-minute drive. And along the drive, I'm thinking about all of the things that I had to do. I was thinking about all of the things that, that were on my mind, right? I was, again, we were, we were planning, of course, Wendy was mostly planning the wedding. I was just there to answer questions. Um, but I was directing a play, and we were opening that week. Um, so this was like the big push week. Um, and we had also been trying, Wendy and I, during our wedding planning, to try to plan for a way for my mom to actually get to the ceremony if she was still in the hospital. So we were thinking about things like, well, maybe we can hire an ambulance and, and get her there. Maybe we can, uh, uh, and this was before Zoom. This was before like big, you know, internet meetings and things like that. But we were trying to figure out, okay, well, is there a way? Could we possibly like set up a camera and somehow, you know, feed the, 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 the thing to the hospital room so at least she could see the wedding even if she couldn't be. We were thinking of all these and, and this 15 minute drive and I'm going through all of these things in my mind because what I didn't read in my sleepy stupor was the voice of my sister. I couldn't hear 
the seriousness of her tone. You need to get to the hospital. So I get to the hospital. Some of my family's already gathered around in the room. My mom's laying there, she's not awake. And the doctor, you know, doctors and nurses, they're telling us, well, she had, we haven't been able to, to get her to wake up. Um, and we've been trying for like two hours and she's just not responding. And of course, I'm her favorite son, right? I, I, I'm the favorite, I'm, I'm, I'm the baby of the family, I don't care what anybody says. And I thought, because life is a fairy tale, all she needed was to hear my voice. If she just heard my voice, she would wake up. And I did. I leaned over her like she was Sleeping Beauty. And I leaned right down into her ear. And I was like, Mom, it's time to wake up. Nothing. Mom, it's time to wake up. I'm getting louder. Getting more desperate. I remember saying, Mom, you've got to wake up. I'm not ready to let you go yet. Life was not a fairy tale. I remember crying. Crying harder than I ever had before. And if you have ever experienced the loss of a loved one, and especially if you've ever experienced the loss of a loved one sitting at their bedside, you might know some of the grief that I'm talking about. So the family standing around the hospital bed, and we had to make a decision. Were we going to leave mom on life support, even though the doctor had just run another test and said there's very little brain activity? We're going to leave her on life support, or we're we going to let her go. There was a little hitch, though. My dad was in another hospital across town, a good 20 minutes away. Um, he had attempted suicide a few months before this. Some things came out about some things that had happened in his past, and just the fact that they came out were upsetting enough for him to try to take his life. He was not successful, and he was admitted to the psychiatric ward of another hospital. And he wasn't there when mom was laying there dying. And I just, I, I, I talked to the doctor, everybody was there, I was like, you gotta wait. You gotta wait. I gotta go get my dad. And the 20-minute drive there, I'm on the phone with his hospital saying, I'm, I'm coming to get my dad. His, his wife is dying. I'm checking him out of the hospital for a little while so he can come and say goodbye. And of course, they got him ready. As soon as I got there, he was at the door waiting to come out, and we drove the 20 minutes back 
got him up to the hospital room and stood there while he sat next to this woman that he had loved for over 30 years and said goodbye. And we were asked to step out of the room while the doctors and nurses did their thing. And my mom passed. And the whole rest of that week, I really don't remember a whole lot. I don't. I know that my sister and I went to the funeral home to make funeral arrangements. I, I know that my boss, um, when, I, when I stopped back in the office later that day, told me to take the rest of the week off, take as much time as I needed. I had a good boss. I know I was still directing a play that was opening that week, and I needed to be there. I still had a wedding that was being planned, and fortunately, Wendy was doing most of that. The play I was directing was a musical called The Secret Garden. And as if this week wasn't hard enough, the plot of The Secret Garden opens with this little 10-year-old girl being awoken in the morning and being told that her parents had died overnight of cholera. The one thing I do remember though, the one thing that was kind of etched in my mind was every time I talked to a friend, every time I talked to a family member, I remember their empathy, I remember their grieving, I remember their sadness for me, I remember their sadness for my mom, for my family. My friends empathized with my grief because just like most of you, they'd experienced something of that kind of grief before. They knew what I was going through. And even though I was what you would call a lapsed Christian, 21 years ago, I have no doubt that I was exactly where I needed to be, surrounded by the people that I needed to be surrounded by, so that I could receive God's blessing of comfort. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Do you know that Jesus cried? The Bible tells us Jesus wept while he lived among us. First time that we see this is upon the death of his friend, a man by the name of Lazarus, who lived in Bethany with his sisters Mary and Martha. Jesus learned that uh, Lazarus was ill. He wasn't near Bethany at the time. He was off someplace else. And... Uh, he gets word, Lazarus is sick, you need to come, you need to see him, you need to visit him. And he tells his disciples, Lazarus' illness does not lead to death. And he stayed where he was for two more days. Two more days. Then he received word, Lazarus is dead. And this confused the people that were with Jesus and they just couldn't understand. Well, Jesus, you said you, you said he wasn't going to die. And Jesus reassured them. And in John eleven fourteen 14 to 15, 
Jesus says, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I am glad that I was not there so that you may believe. But let us go to him. I'm not sure this is very reassuring to the people that were with him. Yes, I know Lazarus is dead, but I was more worried about you and your belief. But let's go see him anyway. Sounds kind of upside down, doesn't it? So they went. And Lazarus' sisters, Mary and Martha, each individually come up to Jesus and confront Jesus. And they both said the same thing. Jesus, if you had been here, he wouldn't have died. Jesus, if you had been here, we know that you have been healing people all over the place. We know that all you would have needed to do was say the word and our brother would still be alive. Jesus went to the tomb. And we read in John 11.35 that Jesus wept. That's the whole sentence, by the way. Jesus wept. That's the whole verse. Now, this might need a spoiler alert, but Jesus ended up raising Lazarus from the dead. Lazarus has been laying in the tomb for four days. Jesus comes up and says, roll away the stone. And the people that were there kind of looked at him strange and say, well, my Lord, it's been four days. And if you're a King Jamesian, they would have said, he stinketh. <laughs> Lord, you're asking us to open this tomb. We're all going to get sick from the smell. Are you crazy? They open the tomb. And Jesus doesn't even touch him, doesn't even go into the tomb. He just looks into the tomb and he says, Lazarus, come out here. And there's Lazarus coming out. He's still wrapped in his bedclothes. He literally looks like a mummy and he's just kind of doing this thing. Coming out and they unwrap him and he's alive. But we ask ourselves, if Jesus knew that he was going to do this, if Jesus knew that he was going to stand there at this tomb and tell this man to come out and bring him back to life, why would he cry? Because he was standing there. He was weeping. And the answer, I believe, is that Jesus was expressing compassion. He was expressing empathy. He understood what Mary and Martha and all of the people who were around that tomb were experiencing. And because he was human, he couldn't help but cry. Not because he knew that Lazarus was dead, because he knew that's something he could do something about. He cried because of the grief because of the mourning that the family and friends had been going through. I believe that Jesus wept for me after my mom died. 
Not because he didn't know that she was one of his followers and that she was now actually standing next to him in the kingdom of heaven. He wept because of what I was going through. Because we are human and we grieve. And I'm going to tell you this right now. It makes me so angry when a Christian will grieve the loss of a loved one and another Christian will come up and say, you don't need to cry. They're with Jesus now. I don't know where that comes from. I mean, it's true. I knew my mom was with Christ. I knew it. Didn't make my loss any better because now Jesus has her and I don't. And I believe that Jesus even wept for me when I stood outside in my backyard one night with my eyes raised up to heaven, raised, literally raising my fist and pointing my finger and saying, why did you do this? Why did you take her away from me? She was only 65 years old. She was supposed to live longer. She was supposed to see me get married. She was supposed to see me have children so that she could meet her grandchildren. Why did you do this? Some of us in this room have experienced that. Now, we may not have been as dramatic as me going out in our backyard and actually shouting. But most of us have gone through that time of why did you do this? And you know what? Jesus still wept for me. God still comforted me, even though I was angry. Maybe because I was angry. Jesus didn't heal Lazarus because he had something better in store. Not just for Lazarus, but for all of the people that experienced Lazarus coming out of that tomb. What Jesus was telling us in this one moment is I have power over death. I have power over the grave Lazarus came out because God has given me the power to bring him out. And I don't know about you, but to me, that's comforting. It's good to know that Jesus has this power. There was another time that Jesus wept too. This time it was in uh, Luke chapter 19. Jesus had just ridden into Jerusalem with people on both sides of him. He's up on this donkey and people are waving these palm branches and they're laying their coats along the ground and these palm branches along the ground and they're shouting their own blessing to Jesus. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And they are cheering and they are shouting. And they shouted so loudly that some of the Pharisees that were there kind of watching this whole thing happen, they told Jesus to quiet down the crowd. Jesus, tell these people to shut up. Jesus replied, if they shut up, the rocks would shout out. 
the rocks would shout out. This was one of the most exciting times in Jesus' ministry, at least to the people around him. Here came Jesus getting ready to overthrow the Romans and bring freedom to Israel. He is our Messiah. And they're so excited. And right after Jesus finishes his ride into Jerusalem, It says, and when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children with you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. Jesus wept over Jerusalem because they had got it wrong. They didn't know the things that make for peace. They didn't know that the Messiah that they were waiting for wasn't there to create some overthrow of a political government. The Messiah wasn't there to conquer Rome. The Messiah was there to conquer sin and death. The Messiah wasn't there to keep a city built. The Messiah was there to build our spirits. Jesus wept because he knew what lay in store for that city. These people who ultimately, most of them, denied him as Messiah after he died. He knew what was coming just 40 short years later while they were still waiting for what they thought was the Messiah. In 70 AD, the Roman general Titus built siege works around Jerusalem. Basically, what that meant is nobody could come out and nobody could go in. And when nobody can go out of a city and nobody can come into a city, stuff starts running out. The purpose here is to starve out the people in Jerusalem so that they will surrender. And the historian Flavius Josephus wrote about this. He said, throughout the city, people were dying of hunger in large numbers and enduring unspeakable sufferings. In every house, the merest hint of food sparked violence. And close relatives fell to blows, snatching from one another the pitiful supports of life. Need drove the starving to gnaw at anything. Refuse, which even animals would reject, was collected and turned into food. And he goes on to relate this story of this woman named Mary. And he tells this story and he says, famine gnawed at her vitals and the fire of rage was even fiercer than famine. So driven by fury and want, she committed a crime against nature, seizing her child, an infant at the breast, 
She cried, my poor baby, why should I keep you alive in this world of war and famine? Even if we live till the Romans come, they will make slaves of us. And anyway, hunger will get us before slavery does, and the rebels are crueler than both. Come, be food for me. And an avenging fury to the rebels and a tale of cold horror to the world to complete the monstrous agony of the Jews. And with these words, these words of Mary, these words of a starving woman whose city had been besieged and had been run out of food for weeks, maybe even months, she killed her son, roasted the body and ate half of it and hid the rest for later. Many of you are parents. Many of us have never known that hunger. But many of us are parents. And just watching the faces here this morning, I can see the heartbreak of this story. Why is Pastor Joe telling us such a horrible story? Talking about mourning. Jesus wept. Jesus wept because he knew that this woman would do these horrible things. Because she had lost hope. Because she didn't know the time of her visitation. She didn't know Messiah had already been here. By 70 AD, most of the Christians in the world lived outside of Jerusalem. Most of them. The word had spread that far. And I can't help but wondering if Jesus thought while he was lamenting, while he was weeping over this city that he had just entered, if only they would understand who I am, if only they would understand what Messiah is and what he is going to do. Maybe this woman doesn't commit this horrible act. This act that I'm sure caused her to mourn more deeply than anything else ever had. Jesus wept. He wept because his own people rejected God's mercy and grace and the forgiveness that comes through the blood of Jesus Christ. Jesus wept. He mourned for his people. Do we mourn over our world? Do we mourn over our friends, our family, our neighbors, who up till now have rejected God's grace and mercy and forgiveness? Do we mourn for them? 
Do we mourn with Jesus over a world that refuses to see the truth of the gospel that God gave his only son so that whoever believes in him, anyone who realizes that they are poor in spirit, that they deserve death, but then they realize God's mercy and God's forgiveness and God's grace are there for them. Do we mourn for these people who have not yet reached that point so that they should not perish but have eternal life? Laurie told a story today about mushrooms. And she told us how the mushrooms had these seeds. And this central mushroom would birth this circle. And this circle would birth another circle. And this circle would birth another circle. Are we telling people about Jesus Christ? Are we living the life that Jesus told us to live? So that our seed might bear fruit. So that our seed might be the thing that brings people to the realization that they are poor in spirit and they need God's grace and forgiveness. We call ourselves Morning Hour Chapel. I wonder, are we also Morning Hour Chapel? Do we mourn for our world so much that we want to do anything we can to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with them? Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your grace and your mercy. The only thing that makes us even worthy to step into this building, that worthy to sing your praise, worthy to pray to you, worthy to inherit eternal life through the death and resurrection of your Son. Father, help us see the world. Help us to see our friends, our neighbors, our family as followers of Jesus Christ. We weep for them. We mourn for them, for the loss that they experience by not knowing you. Father, open our hearts, open our minds, make us strong, make us brave. But most of all, make us love so much that all we can do is share Jesus Christ with those who are lost. As we leave here today, as we go through the rest of our lives, let us live the life of Jesus Christ so that others can see it. So that others can see their poverty in spirit and turn to your grace and mercy.
We pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Many of our friends, our family, our neighbors are like Lazarus laying in a grave of sin. Will you weep over them? Will you share the gospel of Jesus Christ with them so that Jesus can stand at the tomb of their soul and say, come out, be alive, live in me. I pray that you would take the message of the gospel everywhere you go this week. God bless you.